you want to grab your Bibles and take them and turn with me to 1 Timothy, this is where we've been um, last week and, and now moving into this week. What we're doing here at Buffalo City Church is, we talked about this last Sunday, we're moving our idea of what church is, hopefully, into a healthy place. Uh, that's the goal. That's why we're studying together the book of 1 Timothy, because we desire to be a people who live together in authentic community. We desire to live together in a healthy church context. Um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, Larry has some in the back. Just put your hand in the air and we will bring one to you. Great. Looks like everybody's doing great. Okay, good. So, First uh, Timothy then, this, this book was written directly to a young man uh, by his mentor, Paul. I mean, we're probably all familiar with Paul and, and, what, uh, and who he was and what he did. He's obviously one of the, the, the primary authors of the New Testament. But when we're looking at this, we're, we're, we're seeing Paul instruct Timothy on how to engage in, uh, and participate together in in the, the church context. Timothy is in Ephesus, as we read last week, and in verse 3, Paul urges Timothy to uh, remain on in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So last week we dove in, as we've deconstructed church and we've thought about what it means to be a people who live together in community, as we've sort of stripped some of these ideas away about what church is. Church is not a building, it's a people. Church is not about us coming to consume, but for a place for us to serve and to live together under the gospel truth that's given to us in God's word. Um, we stripped away some of those ideas that are, that are prevalent in our culture, and now we're moving to reconstruct some of those ideas again. We want to be at a place where we have a healthy understanding of what it means to do church, what it means to be the people of God. So today we're going to dive in. We, we looked at all of chapter 1 last week, and, and today we're going to dive into chapter 2. We're just going to take the first seven verses in chapter 2. Um, and so let's read these together this morning. Let's read these together, and then, and then we'll do some, some work here in the text. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 7. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come to this text this morning, as we look at Paul's instruction to Timothy, God, I pray that our hearts would be opened, that we would hear what it is that you have to say to us this morning through this text, and that we would recognize that the text has authority, that these are the very words of God spoken through your servant, Paul. 
Lord God, that these words have the power to change and to affect and to shape our lives. Lord God, but most of all, we pray that this text and these ideas and these concepts as we, as we plow forward and understanding and building a, and our understanding of what a healthy church looks like, Lord God, I pray that our affections, first and foremost, would be stirred for the person of Jesus Christ. God, we are not here to do something for ourselves. God, we are not here to consume. Lord God, we, we rely upon your text to consume, but we, we here come here to this place in order that we might hear together the word of God and that we might heed it, go out from here, and impact the community. That we might go out and impact the people who we regularly come in contact with. Even as Kellen shared this morning, that we would impact the people who are doing life together regularly. That we would, we would press in upon our brothers and sisters. That we would love them in a way that, that the world or anything else would, can, cannot love them or, or provide a place for them. Lord God, we recognize, even as we kind of came out of studying the I Am Statements in John, Lord, that, that you are the one who addresses all of our problems. You are the one who addresses all of our needs. Lord, we don't rely on ourselves or our understanding, but we rely wholly on you, on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We know that the things that we talk about today, if they're not met with that posture, are going to fall on deaf ears. Lord God, we read this text, we read every text, when we come to Scripture, we interpret our life and everything that goes on around us through the lens of the good news of the gospel. And I pray that our hearts would be stirred and our affections would be heightened for the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we gather. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. So like I mentioned, we're in week two of this, this sermon series, considering what it means to be a healthy church. Um, and remember, we've spent time, we've spent time deconstructing these ideas about church and, and what it is. And so building back this healthy understanding is really, really important for us. And, and what Paul is teaching Timothy here in chapter two is equally as important to our understanding of what it means to be a healthy church. Remember last week we talked about really three things. We talked about these distractions that were part of that were going on in the church in Ephesus, these distractions that that the church was faced with, and he was teaching Timothy how to address these things. And then there was a uh, this understanding that out of this, that, that the people needed to, through a gospel lens, be looking at the world and discerning what was going on. And we recognize that there, the, the, the idea behind that is for us to, as a people, be encouraging one another to be discerning in what we do and what we engage. And then finally, uh, we talked about doxology. Was, Paul is teaching and instructing Timothy. He is, he is putting forth gospel truth for Timothy and engaging him directly with gospel truth. And then he says, all praise be to God. He speaks then of God's glory. And this word we talked about, doxology, which is, is glory and word. Uh, put those together and we have speaking of God's glory. 
So when we get to this text this morning, we, we have that thrust coming in. And so when we, we see Paul begin to say to Timothy, first of all, then we know we're getting into some practical stuff. We know that we're getting into some practical stuff. So this is what we're going to talk about this morning. I think that this is what the goal of this text is. And it's very, very simple for us. Paul urges Timothy, first of all, before anything else, to pray. Paul urges Timothy to, before all else, pray. So what we're going to do here is look at prayer. What we're not going to do is give you a comprehensive understanding of the idea of prayer, but we're going to treat this text specifically as it relates to the church. So if, if you want to talk more about it, we've got some great resources that we could pass along to you about prayer. We can talk a bit more about the nitty-gritty in the community group setting if, you, if you'd like to do that. But right now we're looking at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7, and what this has to say to our church community about prayer. So we really see four things happening. We're going to dive into each of these things individually briefly this morning. We see Paul instruct Timothy when to pray. We see Paul instruct Timothy on who to pray for. We see the results of this prayer, and then we see what to pray in light of. So we're going to take each one of those in turn this morning. When to pray. Paul is going to give Timothy a very clear understanding of when to pray. He starts off by saying to him, first of all, first of all, before all else, pray. And he elevates prayer to this place of primacy for, for Timothy, to this place of primacy for Timothy. In chapter 1, he gave Timothy his purpose. It's like, hey, I'm urging you to stick around in Ephesus so that you may do these things, that you, you may engage these guys who are preaching false doctrines, who are, who are engaging in these silly myths, and I'm giving you the, the tools to take care of this. And now, he's saying, first of all, even before you dive in there, pray. He lists four things then in the text. First of all, that I urge that entreaties, or your Bible might say supplications, and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. So it's important what we do with lists like this. Okay, so when you're reading your Bible and you see a laundry list, sometimes I think the temptation for us is to be like, okay, so, so we have four different words here, so we're going to break all these down. And not that each of these things doesn't carry some connotation or a little bit of a nuance with it, but we have to read it in the context of Scripture, and that's not what Paul's doing. He's not giving us four separate ways to pray. What he's doing is building weight for us to give us an understanding, to give us more of a thrust into the command to first and foremost pray. So when he says supplications, when he says prayers, when he says petitions, when he says thanksgivings, he is saying behind this carries a whole lot of weight. We see this throughout scripture. Probably the most, the most common understanding of this would be in Isaiah 6, where we see the proclamation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Three times to give us weight. Repetition is like the Bible's way of giving us a superlative. So if we were to say something like, wow, that was really good. If something was better, we say, well, that's really better. We say something like, that was the best. 
That's what's happening here. That's what Paul is doing. He's putting weight behind this idea that first and foremost we need to pray. So he says, petitions, prayers, supplications, and thanksgivings, building this idea for us. Building it so that we might understand that this is a weighty thing. Um, so... When, when we talk about that superlative idea, we say that's the best, or, or sometimes we might even say something like, well, that's really good, good, good. I don't know if anyone says that. Some people talk like that. Like, that's really good, good, good. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's you, maybe not. I don't know. I think I've heard people say that. Or something like this, like, wow, that's really good, that's great. Like, we, we sort of tend to repeat ourselves. And that, that's the idea behind it. Like, Paul is giving this weight. When I, when I want to communicate something very directly to my kids, like, obey mommy, what I do is I say, look in my eyes. Look at my eyes. Hey, boys, look at my eyes. And then, then they stop and they look at me. And, and that's kind of even what Paul is doing here a little bit to a certain extent. He is giving, the, he's giving Timothy, he's saying, stop, look at my eyes. Look at my eyes. I am giving you some really important instruction here. I am giving you something that you need to cling to, first and foremost. So look at daddy. Paul, as a spiritual father, is imparting some serious instruction to Timothy here. And so, at first glance, we might not see that in that text, but we need to discipline ourselves to read in this way. Look at this first one. First of all, then, I urge. And remember, remember. okay, so remember when you approach your Bible to. Remember this. When, when Paul wrote this to Timothy, he didn't write down chapter and verse. Right? That came much, much later. That came much, much later. So the way that we break up the text, we look, we look at it, we're like, okay, verse, okay, so we, now we're moving on to a different thought. No, this is not a different thought. This all flows together. This is one letter. I don't know, I don't know you sit down and bang out an email at work. You don't sit down and like write out, you might write a list or something like that, but you're not writing it like, okay, now I'm moving on to a different thought, so I'm going to put a two here or a, a subscript or something. I don't know. But, but this is, so, so this for us, so Timothy would have read this in one sitting. He would have sat down and read it all and digested it all at one time. So this is flowing then for us. And so when he would see Paul then write, first of all, he would think in his mind, transition. First of all, then what do I do? I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. So two things for us just to consider that as a church. Do we sense the import and the, the privacy of prayer in the way that Paul is communicating it to Timothy? Do we as a people engage God in prayer in the way that Paul is, is putting it so, so up front for Timothy? I, I, just a moment of transparency, I don't. I'm terrible at this. This is, this is one place where like, God is working on me. So it's like the, the first thing that I think in my, in my morning is rarely I need to pray. I need to, I need to spend time um, in the presence of God praying, reading God's word and praying. I take, my mind immediately goes to what do I need to do today? Instead of how do I need to begin to think about my day? And so primacy of prayer for us as a people as a church, are we committed to pray first? When something happens, when things go wrong, when our world just does not look like we want it to, do we pray first? Do we pray first? When there is craziness going on, like Timothy's world is crazy right now because of these dudes who are running around, Hymenaeus and Alexander, just 
doing bogus stuff. They gotta excommunicate these guys. There's people in the church in Ephesus who are who are who are teaching these strange doctrines, silly myths. They don't understand the purpose of the law. They don't understand gospel truth. And they're running around doing all of these things that, that Paul is instructing them clearly not to do. Is our first inclination to prayers to do? Do we as a church sense the weight and the urgency of prayer? And as a church, do we offer flippant prayers? I think I think we, we do this far too often. It's just something like, uh, bless so-and-so today. Um, not that that's a bad prayer, but it's, it's incomplete. Part of us as, as a people, as we engage one another in community, we need to begin to realize and recognize that we have a unique opportunity not only to address and to help people apply gospel truth to their daily lives and the things that they do. Like, um, when I'm going through something tough in my life, well, here, let me help you with that. Let me, look, let me help you look at that through a gospel lens. But then instead of just saying later in, in, in the, our day, like, oh, uh, bless so-and-so, if it even calm comes to mind, there's like, pray specifically for that instance, specifically for that thing that's going on in the life of that individual. Hopefully this, this will all kind of come into clearer focus as we process through some of these other ideas that Paul gives to Timothy here. Um, but this is important. These questions for us are important. Do we sense the primacy of prayer? As a church, are we committed to pray first? Do we sense the weight and urgency of prayer? As a church, do we offer flippant prayers? We need to begin to wrestle with these understandings as we move to constructing a healthy understanding of what church is. Okay. So that's Paul tells Timothy when to pray. And when to pray is first of all. And then secondly, who to pray for. So we have this, this, uh, this, this, this mini list here for kings. And uh, for, First of all, he says, on behalf of all men. And then he says in verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So he says, for kings and all who are in authority. So he says, all men... And this doesn't mean to throw out blanket prayers for 7 billion people, or however many people on earth now. So like, bless everybody, like, blanket prayer, everybody, everybody's good. And this doesn't mean to sit down and to like, recite everyone individually, right? But the weight behind the word all, when Paul uses this word, we're actually going to see this in a couple other instances throughout the course of this book. What he's saying is all types, all kinds of people. Not just the people that run in your social circles, not just the people that you work with, but all types of people, all tribes, tongues, and nations, everyone. We're praying for all kinds of people. Paul knows that the church in Ephesus had people who weren't, uh, who weren't, really, weren't, weren't really doing what was, what was according to what, what he had instructed the church in Ephesus before, and that's why he asked Timothy there. But this idea, uh, probably, just, this is probably like a relatively small group of people, okay? So like they're probably meeting in a house. The church in Ephesus probably wasn't this gigantic mass of people. Uh, it's not a mega church. It's, it's probably a, a, a group of people, probably not larger than this. And there were Jews and there were Greeks involved in this church. And there, were, there, were, there, were, there was a whole lot of diversity in this. And so Paul would have been communicating very specifically to them um, that they... 
that they, despite the pressure and the persecution, sort of maybe this outcast status, they're probably meeting in, in a place where they where they wouldn't be where they wouldn't be detected. This 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 instruction would seem probably pretty uh, pretty strange to them. Because Paul is saying to them, pray for the people who are outside of this, all types of people, again, not just your social circle, not just your co-workers, not just who you engage regularly in this context, but all people. And there would have been people who would have been dramatically hostile to them. Dramatically hostile to their, to their people. So he's saying, pray for these people. Pray for the people who look different from you. Pray for the Jews and the Greeks. Pray for your persecutors. Pray for your own community. So when he says pray for all types of people, for all men, he's saying all types of people in order that they might pray for everyone. No one is excluded from this. There isn't a sub-segment of society that you're not praying for that's off limits. And then in verse 2, he moves to this idea, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Okay, so this, this one is, this is, a little, this is a little different, okay? Especially for the hearers in Ephesus. Again, if, if Paul relates this to Timothy, Timothy relates it to his hearers in Ephesus. Here's my, Paul, hang on one second. Or Timothy, hang on one second. Um, the, the dude who was in power in Rome at this time was Nero. If you know anything about history, Nero is just killing Christians left and right. This guy was like, he was just hunting down and slaughtering Christians. Like this is most of the apostles would die under his rule and die like a martyr's death under his rule. He was incredibly hostile to Christians. So we gloss over this a bit because sometimes we just don't think, think in these terms. But when he says, for kings and all who are in authority, I think immediately their minds would have gone there. And they would have thought to themselves, but, but Paul, you can't really mean that. You can't really mean that we're supposed to pray for this guy. You can't really mean that, that we should sit down and pray for Nero, the guy who is incredibly hostile towards what we are, who we are. Um, this just isn't our. This just isn't our situation, right? This just isn't our situation. So it's hard to get in that headspace for these people. Um, but I think we do this a little bit as well. Um, when we start to think about political agendas, we sort of think about this like, well, well, I don't want to pray for for that individual because that person doesn't really match up my political agenda, or doesn't really match up with what I think that the direction of this all should be going. And so I'm not necessarily going to pray for that individual. Um, but, but Paul is saying something very different. And probably because also we're just not under that intense scrutiny, that intense persecution. Like nobody's waiting outside. I think I might have said this a couple weeks ago. Nobody's waiting outside just to punch us in the face when we walk out of here or arrest us. Like nobody's going to do that. Nobody's doing that. Um, not in this context at least. And so, so our minds typically don't go there. But, if, but Paul, when he writes this, I think he fully understands what's written in Scripture to us in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. You're saying, pray for your leaders. Pray for the people in power. Not because their political agendas or their understanding of what society should look like matches up with yours. But because God is sovereign over it. 
And because you need to recognize that that what is going on, we're going to see this when we discuss, discuss the second half of verse 2 and the results of prayer, but you need to think along these lines. That these people, despite their hostility towards you, pray for them. Pray for them. So that leads us into that second half of verse 2, the results of prayer. And the results of praying for all men, kings, and authorities. It's this, that we might live a tranquil, tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? I think there are a couple of things in play here. Um, one, because of the hostile context towards Christianity where, the, where, where Paul would have been writing to, that those ruling would not seek to take dramatic action and oppose God's people. I think that that, that, that is contained with this idea, that God's people would not be dramatically opposed in the, in the, in the killing, the, 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 the political uh, oppression that was taking place, but that God would show favor to his people and they would be able to advance God's mission and God's purpose based on, um, in, in, a, in a context, in an in a, in a environment that was not one that was seeing dramatic opposition. And then secondly, and I think maybe more importantly, what Paul is talking about, here, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. If you're praying for those people who are in authority, if you're praying for all men, if you're praying for those people who are different than you are, a life that prays for all people is one that is in tune with the gospel and recognizes that societal and political situations are not the source of your peace. A life that prays for all people is one that is in tune with the gospel and recognizes that societal and political situations are not the source of your peace. We've talked about this idea a lot here. We've talked about this idea a lot. That circumstances and where we live, the things that go on, the, the, the struggles and the pressures and, the, and whatever it is that we feel in our world is not the source of our peace. It's not the source of our joy. Our joy is found in Jesus, first and foremost. If we, if, we hitch our, our, uh, if we hitch our wagon to anything other than Jesus Christ, we are going to be in a world of pain and hurt all of the time. Because as we've, as we've explored some of these ideas and some of these contexts, our, the world we live in is broken. It is corrupted by sin. And we as a people, we just can't, we can't, we can't expect to hitch our wagon to something that is inherently sinful and expect to find joy and peace in it. At some point, its brokenness is going to become readily apparent. And so I think that this is the primary thrust of what's going on here. Leading a tranquil and quiet life. I think there is this there is this understanding, there's an underlying understanding that that the that the political sense, like it would be really great if we, we didn't have to worry about going out and getting our heads chopped off. But we also recognize if we do, it's the will of God. And we are not going to live in fear. 
Again, a life that prays for all people is one that is in tune with the gospel and recognizes that social, societal and political situations are not the source of our peace. So this conduct, this life, is one that doesn't demand our rights, but one that recognizes our rights as a people are relinquished. It recognizes that our rights as a people are relinquished. We recognize that the only right that we have is a spiritual death. And this is the good news of the gospel. That we as a people deserve nothing. We deserve not to wake up in the morning. But God in His grace and His mercy has, has allowed us to persevere on this earth. He's forbearing. He is patient in order that we might wake up and hear the proclamation of the gospel in order that we might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's this, there's this statement here then also, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And this is not a statement of approval based on our conduct, but a statement born out of the recognition that a life of prayer and it is one of joy that isn't dictated by those circumstances. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, our Savior, for praying for these people because you would only be praying for all men and kings and all who are in authority if we recognize that our joy wasn't tied up in the way that they conducted themselves. Our joy isn't dictated by circumstances. It's the result of understanding that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even as Paul wrote to us. In verse 15 of chapter 1 is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. If someone expects and, and, and demands their own rights, they cannot fully resonate with this verse. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. If that's our posture, then our rights are relinquished. They go out the door. We recognize that we as a people have a purpose, and that purpose is to communicate gospel truth to those we come in contact with regularly. So practically, what does this mean? I think, I think very clearly here, Paul is working towards an idea for us. So we may lead a tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. This is practically, I think, what this means. That first of all, we pray. You see that directly in the text. First of all, we pray in spite of protest. Paul is Timothy, telling Timothy that prayer is primary. And the path that the kings take is up to the Lord. And that we seek God in that, first and foremost. And then we be, we're content. We live in this, we live in a world where everything is so instantly accessible to us. We can pull up our phone and pull up our news app. We can see everything that's going wrong in the world, like on a global scale, like immediately. We need to begin to think past the 24-hour news cycles. Because those are specifically trying to get to stir up our, 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 our emotions based on the language they use. And it causes people to be frustrated and fearful. We as a people need first to pray. 
We need to put our hearts in the proper place, in the proper posture, and then filter those things through a gospel lens. We need to trust Jesus. So this is the result of prayer, according to Paul here. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life, one that uh, understands that our contentment and our joy isn't predicated upon earthly circumstances. Um, and then finally, as we're moving through this, what to pray in light of. And it's simply this, as we see this in the, in the rest of this text here, in verses 4 through 7. What we pray in light of is simply this, the gospel. So a tranquil and quiet life is good and acceptable because it's a life that recognizes that our contentment and joy is not tied up in earthly circumstances. And then we have this statement, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, this text here has been snatched out of the, the context many times and used as a proof text for universalism. We're like, oh, well, look, God wants everyone to be saved. Um, that's, a, that, that's a perversion of what's going on here in the broader context. People say, oh, hey, God wants all to be saved, so they all will be, or God is not in control. That's clearly not what's going on here. Be aware of that, because people will try and use that. This is an expression of the gospel. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God intended communion with, with humanity, right? But that was broken by sin. This is the gospel. That was broken by sin. There was nothing then that man could do to make his way to God the Father. But God in his love and mercy made a way through his son Jesus Christ. And if we move then to verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. If you read that verse, you can't read verse 4 in an understanding of universalism where I'm just like, everybody's going to get saved. Because then why is a mediator even necessary? Why is a mediator even necessary? If there isn't a direct conflict that needs to be resolved, then why is a mediator even necessary? There's something else in play here with this statement, though, in verse 4. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Earlier we said that when Paul instructed Timothy to pray for all men, we said not all 7 million people on the planet, not everyone individually by name, but all types of people, and that's what's going on here. We are understanding that the gospel is opening up salvation to all types, all kinds of people. There is no one on the face of this earth that is exempt from understanding, from hearing, and having the opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Salvation comes to the Jew first, and also the Greek. And when he says that, what he's saying is that every single individual now, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, has the opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus. That's what this is about. Desiring that all men come to the knowledge of the truth. So we say that the thrust is all types of men. 
God desires to have his intent restored, his intent in the garden with Adam and Eve to walk in perfect communion or relationship with them. But part of that restoration is that the gospel opens up salvation to everyone. That leads us then to verse 7, where Paul says, For this I was appointed a preacher and, and, and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So if you read the book of Acts, you see Paul, and he's, he's on mission. He's communicating truth uh, to the Jews, and he's frustrated with how that's going. He's like, I'm done. I'm going over here to the Gentiles because, I, because that is a significant subset of society. Everyone else in the world, except for this small little place in, in Palestine, everyone else in the world needs to hear the gospel. And so then we have these missionary journeys where Paul is going on a mission, planning churches like the church in Ephesus. And so Paul has a unique understanding and a passion to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul is the appointed preacher and the apostle of the Gentiles because salvation is no longer just for the Jew. And this is a huge New Testament theme. We have to read a lot of the New Testament in light of this understanding. That, that for these people, this would have been a fresh idea. And for us, it has direct application in our daily lives. We don't, we don't get to pick and choose who we share the good news of the gospel with. We're like, oh, that guy smells weird. I'm not going to share the gospel with him. It's like every single person you come in contact with has the opportunity, if they hear, to respond to the gospel truth. That's the direct application for us. For, the, for that socially awkward coworker, for the homeless guy who asked for change on the street, for the, your cashier at Hugo's, everyone has the opportunity to respond to gospel truth. The gospel is for everyone, so we pray in light of that gospel truth. Our prayers are for people that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. All types of people. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you're doing or, or what you will do. It matters just if, it only matters what Jesus has done. Our prayers are made recognizing that we have a mediator in Jesus. Our prayers are made recognizing that it's always the first action that we should take, right? First of all, I urge entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made, made on behalf of all men. Our prayers, when primary, demonstrate a reliance on God and an urgency in obedience. And an urgency in obedience. Our prayers result in peace and contentment because we pray in light of this gospel truth. So let's conclude this morning just with some ideas related to part of this understanding as we're building up um, what it means to be a healthy church. Part of this understanding is our push towards covenant membership, what it looks like to partner together as a people under the banner of the gospel so that we might respond and live together as those um, who uh, understand that we have a common identity in Jesus. So what does this have to do with covenant membership and our partnership together as a church? One, we commit to pray first. We commit to pray first. So we go from here, and we're going to get together in like our community groups, if you're part of a community group, this week, um, and we're going, to, we're going to do some things together. We're going to get together in that design time, or organically, we're going to see one another in passing, and we're going to encourage one another and live life together. But firstly, we need to pray for one another or with each other outside of that time and context. And my, my prayer 
And what I hope your prayer is this week, that we can think about the people who are part of our communities, who, who are part of our church community, or the people that we're engaging outside of that community, and that we can think about those individuals regularly and pray for them regularly. If we're just getting together and just showing up and doing life in this, in this haphazard sort of way, without the intentional underlayment of prayer, then, then, our, then these purposes and these, these understandings that we have are, are going to be um, rooted in soil that is not firm, that, that will quickly be torn up and, and uprooted. This is the community that God has given us as those who share in the common identity in Jesus Christ. A community that commits to pray for one another regularly is a community that understands and recognizes that our common identity is first found in Jesus. If we're actively praying for each other, then we'll be active in each other's lives. It will drive us to be unified because we have a stake in others' lives. We're putting the needs of others, elevating those above our own needs. We have an intentional investment in the life of others. And that's not, that's not just what it's about. It's not just about like investing in someone. But it is an intentional way that we can, as people, be living our lives together. We say that the life of Buffalo City Church is found in community, not because it feels good, because we show up on a Thursday or on a Monday or on a Tuesday or on a Sunday night, and it feels good to get together with people and hang out and talk and eat some good food. That's not what we're saying when we say the life of Buffalo City Church is found in community, but that we're deeply committed to one another and loving one another. And that can only, that can only happen, this is an exclusive statement, that can only happen if we commit to pray for one another. John Bunyan, some of you might know that name, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote a book on prayer, simply called Prayer. He wrote this. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, this is like his definition. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ, again as the mediator, in strength and assistance of the Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith for the, for the will of God. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. Prayers for the good of the church, and that's why Paul is communicating clearly to Timothy, first of all, then pray. And even more than that, we must elevate it to a first activity in our lives where we must engage regularly. If we're neglecting to pray, then we need to begin to pray and then make sure that our understanding is moving to a place where we're elevating it to the place of primacy, our first activity every single day. Because we pray in light of gospel truth. We pray in light of the understanding that we as a people have been redeemed. So that's the first thing. First of all, we pray. That's what it means for our community. And second of all, we saturate ourselves in that gospel truth. You cannot 
be unaffected by the gospel. You can, the gospel always calls for a response. The gospel is what we pray in light of the weight and, and in the light of the weight behind our prayers. It is the weight behind our prayers. And we have a mediator. We have a great high priest who's making intercession on our behalf before the throne of the Father. So we press into gospel truth because that's going to compel us to move further and further and deeper and deeper into prayer, both individually and corporately. So we avoid the distractions, right, that we discussed last week, these strange doctrines, these myths, these endless genealogies. We build others up in the good news of Jesus. Prayer cannot be removed from the truths of the gospel if we're praying outside of the understanding of gospel truth. That, that just simply, it's, it's ineffective. It, it, it's, it's nothing. The gospel is what is the weight that lies behind our prayers. I'll just leave you with this thought. When we pray, we don't seek to change the mind of God, but to align our heart with His perfect will and reorient our desires to reflect His. We want our desires as a church to reflect the desires of God and the purposes of His people. Let's pray together.